From Wondery, I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. Today, we're wrapping up Napster versus the record labels. You know, this saga wasn't exactly easy listening. There were lawsuits, family feuds, failed business deals, missed opportunities, but it all brought us here to a place where any song you want to hear is just a few finger taps away. It certainly changed the business of music, but it also changed music itself. Before we hit play, a quick look at where we'll be taking you next week. Business Wars will be leaving the United States and traveling overseas to a few places. Thailand, Hong Kong, Germany, Austria, and that's all in episode one. It's going to take a lot of energy. You might almost say we'll be needing some wings. Red Bull versus Monster, that's our next business war. Energy drinks might be your go-to solution for Boost now, but 20 years back, they hadn't even entered the U.S. market. And believe it or not, both companies didn't go down smoothly at first. You might want to stop by the gas station for a pick-me-up before listening in, because this series just might keep you up all night. And if in those early morning hours you have a moment of inspiration and think of a business war you want to hear, well, let us know, won't you? We're probably up, too. Just go to the I Have an Idea page at Wondery.com. But first, we've got some business to attend to, a special guest who's going to give us the full lowdown, or you might say the full download, on Napster versus the record labels. Michael Wood is the pop music critic at the Los Angeles Times. He joined the paper back in 2012. But before that, he wrote about music as a contributor to publications like Rolling Stone, Entertainment Weekly, Spin, The Village Voice, and other alt-weeklies. He's interviewed artists from Rod Stewart to Diplo and many in between. But back when Napster was hanging on for dear life around the turn of the century, he was finishing up undergrad at Northwestern in Illinois, so he knows a bit about the digital music download boom firsthand, perhaps. Well, now we've got him on Skype to talk about how Napster's battle with the record labels set the stage for our music industry today, while changing the way artists make music in the process. Michael Wood, welcome to Business Wars. Thanks. Great to be with you. So was I going out on a limb there by suggesting that perhaps while you were in college you were doing a little downloading yourself, or no? You were you were safely uh, near the near the tree here. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this was you know I was part of that sort of generation where the boom of this stuff happened while I was an undergrad, and for a lot of kids, myself included, this was the first time I had access to high-speed internet. So downloading stuff became something easy to do, not something you, you know, some laborious process that took 18 hours to download an MP3 or something. So it all kind of coalesced at this moment where for me and for, you know, a lot of people my age, it all was happening right then where the, the technology was sort of coinciding with the, um, the, the time and place type of deal. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I remember more vividly mm. uh, something called LimeWire, which yeah. I used to use. Um, but Napster sort of came up from behind. And before I knew it, everyone was using Napster. Do you remember when you first heard about Napster? Yeah. You know, it's it's hard to... It seems so ubiquitous now. And I, and I agree with you that it's interesting to look at the sort of 
branding difference between Napster and LimeWire. I, I, I might have been with you that LimeWire may have been the one that I actually used more, mm-hmm. and yet I don't think there's any doubt that Napster was sort of the dominant brand, which is kind of funny given that you know all the trouble it got in and how it was perceived as like an enemy, and yet it became the Kleenex of file sharing. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's sort yeah. of funny. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's hard to know, like, uh, how I came across it. I'm sure it was some late-night dorm room discovery. Yeah, I think that was how I remember it. Some, you know, some friends at school said, yeah. uh, you know, asked if, if I had downloaded Napster. And then the rest was kind of history. And in a sense, history for not just the industry, but for music listening. I, what do you think these file-sharing services did for the listening experience? I think they did a lot. I mean, I think looking at it now from the vantage of, you know, deep into the streaming era, as we're sort of thinking of our current moment, I really think that you can look at the Napster moment as this sort of beginning of the unbundling of the album. So in the 70s and the 80s and apparently before that in the 60s, fans of pop and rock had been kind of trained to think of the default package, if you will, of music to be the album, 10, 12, 13 songs, whatever it was, a cassette, Mm -hmm. a vinyl album, a CD. That's sort of how we thought as like the consumable item. But Napster kind of refigured that and it broke it down into a song by song basis. That's that was yeah. kind of the uh, the consumable item on Napster. You could download a full album, of course, but that took longer for one thing. And the way the thing was arranged kind of privileged looking at it on a song by song basis. And that's something that we're still kind of grappling with here 20 years later. You know, it's funny, back in the day, I think one of the reasons people didn't download whole albums, part of it at least, was that uh, there was a premium on storage. You know, you only had so much storage on your laptop or your desktop. Nowadays, storage is cheap, and maybe it wouldn't be such a consideration today. But back then, you know, you wanted the songs that you wanted. And what was more, it didn't seem like you were doing anything particularly Wrong. I mean, I don't recall any conversations, certainly early on, about people having objections to what a lot of people who have been in the music industry for a long time will tell you was essentially stealing music. I think that precisely is what made for the disconnect between, you know, Lars Ulrich and Metallica and then the average consumer. You could tell that Lars was super angry about this you could tell that he viewed it as an attack on his livelihood which you know it may well have been but i don't think that the average music consumer thought of it that way at all i can certainly speak for myself and say that when i was 18 and 20 i mean i wasn't giving a huge amount of sort of ethical or moral thought to the idea of downloading music for free um it became normalized in a way and so quickly that I think that consideration just flew out the window and then continued to do so. Sort of like once the cat was out of the bag, it was very difficult for successive generations to sort of have the thought of, oh, wait, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, but, you know, you also think of the fact that now here we are with some distance from Napster. And uh, still, there is this uh, sort of a devaluation of music, right? I mean, there are some artists, uh, and I'm thinking, for instance, of something that I read. Maybe it was in Rolling Stone, and it was an interview with Gene Simmons. You know, Kiss is back on tour and everything. Mm -hmm. 
And he was saying it's just not worth it to even put together the songs for an album or, for that matter, go into the studio because what are we going to make on this? You know, (laughs) and obviously Kiss is a hyper commercial band. But if you extrapolate that, you're talking about an entire industry. You're talking about a lot of musicians. In a sense, it's almost not worth it to go into the studio if you're going to be giving away the songs for just a few fractions of a cent every download. In the same way that uh, peer-to-peer trained a generation to think about music as a song-by-song thing, it also trained a generation to, as you say, devalue the music. Think of it as something free. Think of it as something now that you sort of lease. I mean, that's the kind of deal with, with streaming, is that you're not buying the music per se. You're sort of, you can think of it as you're renting it. You have a nine ninety nine a month subscription that you use to just sort of borrow the music. Um, but yeah, the point is it, it was devalued from, you know, if you were growing up in the eighties or something or the nineties, even when CDs came in and cost so much more, when you, you considered normal to pay 14 bucks for an album or whatever, that idea is like absurd now. Yeah. I think you're putting your finger on something interesting that I hadn't really given a whole lot of thought to. And that is that we no longer kind of hang on to our music. It used to be that when we were downloading from Napster, we were still collecting yeah. uh, something, right? And and now we don't even bother doing that because we know we can go on Spotify or, or, or something along those lines. And it's always just going to be there so long as you've got the subscription. Exactly. I mean, I can clearly remember putting ridiculous amounts of work into organizing, you know, folders of MP3s and stuff uh, on my computer back when downloading was what was happening. And it's just laughable now because it's all sort of just there. It's done for you. It's all laid out neatly and cleanly. And you just don't need to do that anymore. Yeah. You know, I want to go back to something that you were talking about, and that was the shift away from the album to the song. Yeah. Um, You know, it used to be, and I can definitely remember this, that the album was an event that when a band, especially an established uh, band or an established artist, was getting ready to release a body of work, there was sort of a buildup. You know, people would talk about it. People would talk about going into the studio and working on, you know, 10 songs. and, And it was a lot of hype just building up to the album. These days, when an album drops, it might or might not be pre-announced. Part of it is just it appears. I'm thinking of, for instance, Beyonce's Lemonade. Just It just all of a sudden appeared. Sure. But not just an album. Nowadays, artists don't wait around for an album's worth of material. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple things going on here. One, like Lemonade is a perfect example. Because streaming allows you to get the music into the marketplace so much more quickly because you're not waiting for CDs to be printed and then a truck to take them to Best Buy, etc. You can now sort of avoid the whole necessity of a long build-up, and you can just drop the work because it's technologically uh, feasible to do so. But also, I think the speed with which you can put out new work now encourages, well, I should say it discourages spending a long amount of time on making some sort of super considered intricate album, and it just kind of favors... I made a song this weekend, this week, whatever it is, put it out now. Why wait? You know what I mean? The the, yeah, the audience sure. doesn't want to wait. Uh, and now the sort of maker can fill that demand for instant gratification and for like an ever-growing body of content. And as you're, I mean, as you're, as you're saying, and as I'm thinking of this, you know, if we were all streaming, in a sense that favors songs, 
because what are we doing? We're, we're, we're putting together playlists like we right. used to mixtapes, I guess, right? Right. And exactly. And that's, that's kind of the interesting thing is like, yes, it is true that we've gotten away from the album, but you do see, well, you see two things. One, you see playlist culture sort of supplanting the album. So people still do want a kind of body that coheres. They do want yeah. a group of songs. It's just that maybe they're making them themselves or they're allowing Apple Music to make it or Spotify to make it or, I mean, you know, I'm sure Urban Outfitters or whoever is out there trying to <laughs> voice some playlists on somebody. Yeah. Uh, but then you do also see, you know, it's always a pendulum, right? So you see artists, younger artists coming back and then they're kind of getting back into the idea of the album. Now, their motives might be different, uh, but the album does have a place. It hasn't died completely. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Post Malone, for example, right? Yeah. He ha- he put out an album this year that's uh, super long, so I see what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, I think with Post, you know, he's a guy who more or less every song he makes sounds the same, and that's not even necessarily a criticism. It's just an aesthetic. You said sort of that. <laughs> I didn't. Post Malone fans. That's it's him, just an not aesthetic me. fact of his work. But I think what's also true is that he, like many, realized that a streaming audience, maybe they're just going to put a record on. They want to put something on that's more than one song, whether it's a playlist or an album. So it might as well be Post Malone's album that streams for 18 songs or whatever it is, and he gets to scoop up all those streams. So, you know, there's an argument to be made that it's an aesthetic quality that he's after, but it's certainly the case that there's kind of a pragmatic um, strategy at work here. You know, something else, and I don't know if this is true or not, but it seems like there are a lot more collaborations these days than Mm. there used to be. You know, it'd be like an artist featuring another artist. I don't recall seeing a lot of that back in the days when, you know, things were on vinyl or on uh, CD. Yeah, you talked about the uh, the sort of event album, and I think in some ways we've moved to an age of an event single where a bunch of different artists, whether it's, you know, they're all sort of under the aegis of DJ Khaled, who brings together Chance the Rapper and Lil Wayne and Justin Bieber or whoever, mm-hmm. they sort of all come together to make this sort of mega single that does a couple of things. It, for one thing, has the chance of drawing in people from each of those acts' audiences. Um, And also, each of those acts, the sort of genre they represent. I mean, in the last couple of weeks and months, we've seen, I sort of think of it like a post-Despacito moment, where you see sort of established artists from Latin pop kind of hooking up with English language pop artists. And, you know, there's a lot of exciting sort of musical stuff happening there, but... It's also clearly a, an attempt to kind of draw both of those audiences together in, like I said, one sort of event single. You know, we're talking about the fallout of Napster versus the record labels, but returning to Napster itself for just a moment, we mentioned LimeWire, of course. Napster had greater, I guess, brand recognition, but there were other players. There was Nutella, Kazaa. Several of them didn't make it. Uh, what companies took the idea of what Napster created and successfully built on it? I mean, I don't want to be too grandiose, but in some ways, you can look at all of the digital content purveyors now and say that they trace back to a, a Napster in some way. Netflix, for instance. How is it that we as consumers got comfortable with the idea of getting content? you know, over the internet, whether it's streaming, downloading, whatever. Yeah. How how do we get comfortable with that without Napster? Uh, Napster was sort of the one that 
got people used to the idea. You know, it wasn't authorized, whatever that means. It wasn't legal, but it was easy. It was convenient. It was fairly easy to understand. And so I sometimes wonder, without Napster, do you get to the iTunes store? Do you get to Spotify? Do you get to Netflix? I don't know. You know, that's an interesting thing. Um, I was thinking about some of the other players in the streaming space, you know, sort of riffing on the Netflix model for the ears. Some of them have worked well, notably Spotify. But uh, Amazon tried something like that, and it hasn't really flown. Uh, iTunes, I'm not sure. I, I don't think iTunes Radio has really done that well, although once upon a time, iTunes was the top digital retailer. Uh, you know, Pandora. What about Pandora? I think that Sirius XM purchased them back in September or something like that. Pandora's a really interesting sort of case to look at because in some ways they were really ahead of the curve and kind of owning the streaming space. If Napster got people used to the idea of sort of the digitization of content, I think Pandora did a lot of the work of getting people accustomed to the idea of streaming, what that meant, Mm. how it worked. But what they kind of didn't do until it was too late, until their lunch had been eaten by Spotify and Apple Music, is that they didn't uh, respond as quickly to people's desire for on-demand listening. Um, The Pandora model was sort of based on the idea that the Pandora brain would give you what you want based on Hmm. what you told it you liked. And many people, many millions of people like that and, and likely still do. But Spotify said, oh, we won't necessarily choose for you. If you'd like to hear whatever, we have it for you. And so that I think they were, I think Pandora was just late in that space, and by that time the other companies were established. And and as we said with Napster versus LimeWire versus the many other peer-to-peer networks there were, there's only enough space for a couple of these businesses to yeah, thrive. I see what you're saying. You know what I mean? I see what you're saying. You know, there's 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 another element here too, and that's the curation. It used to be that people wanted to have curated content, and Pandora, as you're suggesting, sort of followed that model. But if you look at Spotify or Apple Music. It's much more sort of rummaging around the place, a bit more Napster-esque, maybe. Yeah, I think people want both. I mean, you know, Spotify has some Spotify-curated playlists. Uh, Specifically, there's one called Rap Caviar that's hugely popular. And listeners do want that curated experience. But I think they also want the ability to just go straight to Spotify and listen to the new Lil Wayne album or whatever it is. I think they want both. How's the industry doing as a whole? I mean, we've seen some interesting plays by people like, for instance, we were talking about Beyonce earlier, and she only makes her music available on Tidal. And then you have Taylor Swift, who has gone back and forth when it comes to Spotify. Uh, what difference does it make monetarily for those artists? Uh, well, it makes a lot of difference. I think, to, to answer the sort of macro question, I think what the record industry has tried and is trying to do is they were famously slow on downloading. They famously fought it. I mean, that's what your whole show has been about with Napster. And they paid the price because downloading was here to stay and the record labels didn't accept it until it was too late. So I think with streaming, which has basically supplanted downloading, 
I think the labels and the record industry have tried to be more adaptive, and they've tried to get in on something close to the ground floor with streaming and to really sort of buy in uh, to this whole new way that people mm. listen to. And I, I think it's working out well in their view. The sort of various trade groups love to talk about um, how the record industry is, after many years of contraction, is expanding again and labels are making money. Um, so I think that many people view the worst as being behind them, and now it's a, it's a point of time of, of growth and of trying to figure out how to maybe make more money where some is being made, but obviously many would like to make more. You know, I have to throw this out as just a wild card because I didn't appreciate this until I actually was gifted a turntable and came to discover how much I actually enjoyed listening to vinyl. Um, of course, we're seeing a lot of record stores uh, manage to stay open because of, you know, selling new and used vinyl. Is that a is that a novelty, do you think? Or is it possible that we might see a, an actual robust return of the physical recorded medium? I'm not sure the word robust is one to use, but it is certainly the case that at this moment, the physical media market is, you know, it's not insignificant. Now, I, I think the question to ask is, what is fueling it? Certainly, it's nostalgia. It's people yeah. who were around when vinyl and CDs, I mean, there's even like nostalgia for CDs. There's even nostalgia for cassettes, you know, which these sort of formats that have been thought to be uh, not so great. So, but then once you run out of that, once all the people who have nostalgia for those old formats die, then what? Do you know what I mean? I think that the smart makers and the smart retailers have looked at physical and specifically vinyl as a collector's item. I live in Los Angeles. I'll go to a, a Meba Music, which is a really popular store here on Sunset, and I'm always amazed at how much new vinyl costs. And I think what that is, is labels and, and retailers sort of saying, people are willing to pay a premium for this because they have an emotional attachment to it. It's not just, I want to hear this record, so this is how I hear it. They'll, they'll, they'll pay extra because it satisfies some kind of emotional longing. So, on balance, you think that Napster's been good for music or not so much? I mean, that's a great question. I, 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 I think the labels and the artists and the listeners would all have different... Um, answers to that question. In my view as a listener, um, I think it's a good thing. It certainly made listening easier. If you're a music fan, there's just no way that you can argue with the beauty of having basically the recorded uh, history of music in your pocket on your phone. I mean, it's like outrageous. Like, I'm 40 years old. I'm old enough to know when that kind of thing was just like a crazy Jetsons fantasy, and here it is. Um, but, you know, the other view might be that the hollowing out of the financial incentive to make music, as you described earlier, that's problematic. That uh, keeps people from getting into the game in the first place. That maybe disincentivize people from wanting to make music. And that's troubling. Michael Wood is the pop music critic at the L.A. Times. He knows his stuff clearly. Michael, thanks so much for taking a few minutes out to talk with us on Business Wars. Pleasure to be here. Thanks. 
And thank you, dear listener, for tuning in as we bring Napster versus the record labels to a close. Next week, we'll take a big gulp of Red Bull versus Monster. You might want to prepare yourself because this battle is a little hard to swallow. New episodes of Business Wars come out every Tuesday and Thursday. You can subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Wondery.com, or wherever fine podcasts are served. Now let us know what you think by leaving a review at Apple Podcasts or dropping a note for us at Wondery.com slash survey. Hey, if you're listening on a smartphone, you can tap or swipe over the cover art of this podcast, and you'll find some episode notes, including some details you may have missed. You'll also find some offers from our sponsors, and you can support our show by supporting them. We hope you do. If you haven't checked out Wondery Plus yet, head over to Wondery.com slash plus. That's P-L-U-S and subscribe. There's extra content, early access, and lots of exclusive perks. Business Wars is hosted by yours truly, David Brown. Our senior editor and producer is Karen Lowe. Jenny Lauer is our editor and producer. Production assistance from Caitlin Plummer. The executive producer is Marshall Louie with sound design from Bay Area Sound. Our program was created by Hernan Lopez for Wondery. Wondery.